Welcome to Breakout Investors. Today we are speaking with the management of Dolphin Entertainment, ticker DLPN. Joining me on today's call are Breakout Investors Brad Steveson and Aaron Warwick. This call is being recorded on July 26, 2021 and will be posted on Breakout Investors YouTube channel and on, and on our Calls with Management podcast, which can be accessed via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or, or wherever you get your podcasts. Supporting materials and discussion is and will continue to be posted on the Breakout Investors Discussion app, which is located at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The application and much of the research content is free. After registering and logging in, use the search bar at the top right of any page, type in the ticker, and the results will give you a link to the research and discussion relating today's company and today's presentation. Those of you already on the Breakout Investors platform can share your questions for the company using the Discuss tab in Brad's breakout room. So let's get started with me handing over the microphone to Brad, who will speak briefly about his interest in Dolphin and then introduce and turn the call over to management, who will present for about 15 minutes and then we will be open for Q&A. Brad? Thanks, Scott. And welcome, Bill. Again, good to talk to you again. Uh, I think we think we last spoke five or six weeks ago. We, um, myself, Aaron, and Florian. And since then, a few things have happened. Um, we have recorded a couple of podcasts on the company, um, just discussing our interest in your company. And then also, Aaron has written a very fine Seeking Alpha article. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. And uh, so that prompted some collaboration in our community of breakout investors. And so we've been collaborating and some new questions, of course, have come up as more people have kind of joined in the discussion about Dolphin. And so we we had some follow up questions for you. And so we really appreciate you coming on so that we can talk about that. But before we start with those, uh, I wanted to give you a chance to give an overview of the company to those who may be new to the story that are joining us or will be listening to the call later today. Super. Well, I'm happy to do it. And uh, thank you all for inviting me. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, the dolphin story with a wider audience and uh, appreciate the time. So I'll, I'll keep this to 15 minutes or less for those who are maybe not as familiar with the dolphin story, obviously our forward looking statements, but just to give a, a quick sense for those of the um, again that aren't as familiar with our story, Dolphin Entertainment is a company I founded back in '96, and the first 20 years we were primarily a financing, um, production, and distribution entity for content, primarily television, but also some feature films as well. And most well known for our our family content, we were a longtime partner of Nickelodeon, made a couple of different feature films, including a Justin Bieber documentary, a co-production with Mattel, uh, etc. Um, back in 2016, had the idea um, to put together a group of leading entertainment marketing firms um, with uh, the intention that we could take advantage of the strong tailwinds that uh, the move to direct-to-consumer uh, was experiencing in entertainment. Uh, the studios had announced that they were going to pull their content off of Netflix, um, and it didn't take much foresight to see that there would be what are now called streaming wars where each of the individual studios would have their own streaming platform. I reached out to a company called 42 West, which is widely considered um, the most uh, well-known, most powerful PR firm in Hollywood. Um, 
and they expressed an interest to combine with Dolphin uh, and take the company onto NASDAQ. We closed that deal in 2017 and immediately applied. Um, at the end of the year of 2017, we successfully uplisted our combined entity uh, under the name of Dolphin Entertainment to NASDAQ um, with a three-year plan to acquire other entertainment marketing companies that would want to be the sister agencies to 42 West um, uh, and, and cross-sell services. Um, it, during the past three years then, we, we've reached the goal of, of six acquired companies, um, and I'll briefly describe each. Uh, one is, of course, 42 West starts, uh, primarily has uh, divisions dedicated to representing celebrities, uh, talent, that's true. We're very proud of that division. Uh, many well-known uh, celebrities we represent from the Tom Cruises, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep's uh, of the world. Uh, but I think uh, 42 West also is extremely well-known in Hollywood for its content marketing division. Um, uh, as you can see on screen, if you're able to see it, uh, at the Oscars, 49 nomination campaigns, nine wins, um, more than any other two PR firms um, participating. Uh, last year at the Emmys, 145 nominations and 43 wins, including a his history-making sweep of all seven comedy categories. Um, they're really at the top of their game. Uh, with 42 West, then we brought in Shorefire Media. Uh, it's the industry leader in music PR um, and in very large roster. Uh, we believe the largest in the industry. Uh, uh, musicians spanning every major genre of recorded music um, routinely uh, receives more than a couple of dozen Grammy nominations and, and many winning campaigns um, in 2020. That included seven best album categories. Um, they're a very nice complement to 42 West, um, having film, television, and music. Um, we also added The Door, um, which is the leading celebrity-based food and travel hospitality PR firm. Um, and uh, with celebrity chefs from your Rachel Ray's and Robert Irvine's to uh, many of the leading food events in the country, uh, live events. Uh, including South Beach Food and Wine, New York Food and Wine for many years, Windy City Smokeout out of Chicago. That was also a big draw for us for Shorefire. Uh, their music roster may include Bruce Springsteen to Chance the Rapper, but uh, they also represent many large music events such as Super Bowl Music Fest or Summerfest out of, out of uh, Milwaukee. Um, the last year of the power rankings of these PR firms to give one last context statement for them. Um, the New York Observer ranks the 50 most powerful PR firms in the country out of all 12,000. Um, R3 all made the top 50 list, uh, which we believe was first, and um, they're all in the same industry, which makes it even more remarkable. 42 West was the most powerful entertainment PR firm, uh, number four on the total list. I believe number one was a political lobbying firm out of D.C. To those three uh, cornerstone PR firms that span the breadth of entertainment, we added BHI, which is a boutique um, video gaming, esports, entertainment consumer product company, um, very well regarded over 30 years in business, and they're now a division of 42 West. We added B Social, 
which is a leading influencer and in social media marketing firm out of Los Angeles. Um, they also, like our PR firms, have two divisions uh, representing both brands um, as well as the influencers themselves. Um, that was the most strategic acquisition, I would say, uh, once we had the PR firms, because uh, in the world of earned media, PR and influencer marketing today are the two um, legs you stand on. Um, and I don't think I need to tell anyone on this call the importance of being able to market online. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. Um, and then, of course, we're very proud of our last company, uh, Viewpoint. Um, uh, they're a, a full service creative agency, um, most well known probably for producing promotional videos in the television world. Um, longtime clients, HBO, Showtime, Discovery, A&E, ESPN. And we can use those promotional videos across all of our services um, uh, for our companies. So here we are um, with Dolphin, the, the core collection of companies. And, and since 2017, uh, we've been pointing to 2021 um, from the very first road shows prior to the uplist. Um, the point of putting this collection of companies together now that we have the reach and the scale that we want um, is for what we've started now, which is to start owning some assets that we're also promoting. Um, we call that evolution jumping from Dolphin 1.0, uh, our core businesses, to Dolphin 2.0, where we can uh, create assets that we that we own that we can also market. Um, uh, this is the sole reason why the owners of these very successful private companies would agree to to join into a public company uh, because the the upside of course of asset ownership um, is is a multiple of of what it it pays to market those events or those uh, content so um, back in march we announced the first of those types of initiatives with the fact that we would get into the nft business um, really starting at the end of the summer uh, when and uh, when the marketplaces for NFTs can accept credit cards, um, happy to talk more about that after this op these opening remarks. Since it's uh, the day is now here for that as of last week, um, and NFTs represent uh, an example of the type of 2.0 initiatives we uh, will look to launch. Um, simply put, we are looking to own assets where our form of marketing and our uh, ability to market will most influence the success of the product. So it's kind of common sense, right? Um, we're not looking to get into the build electric cars business because I don't know that our form of marketing or our, our reach would be as helpful. Um, but in, in the vast majority of products for the vast majority of products, excuse me, earned media is the entirety of the marketing plan because most products can't afford a paid media campaign. And in the world of earned media, um, that is the province of um, public relations and influencer marketing. NFTs are sweet spot for us because we can also utilize our relationships uh, with intellectual property owners. Uh, think the studios, the streaming services, um, every major streaming service effectively, uh, all, the vast majority of them are clients, um, the major music labels, 
um, all forms of entertainment uh, provide IP um, that we can develop NFT marketplaces or NFT products around. We know how to produce them with our production background and our access to the best artists of Hollywood, um, and we can market them. Um, so we're used to marketing entertainment-related collectibles and consumer products. Um, we have the best in the business at doing that. So that's an example of why NFTs rose to the top and, and were one of, of this year's 2.0 initiatives. But they're not the only one. Um, we've committed publicly uh, that before the end of this year, uh, just like we said three years ago, we would buy six companies to finish 1.0. <laughs> By the end of this year, we'll have six 2.0 initiatives announced. Our goal is to have two per category per year. What are the categories that we see of products that we think we can market effectively? Well, consumer products would be one. Um, NFTs fall into that category for us. But and when you think consumer products and you think entertainment, there are many categories where historically entertainment or celebrity backed consumer products have done well um, and in areas that we currently market. Uh, the door, for example, we think is the best PR company in the country uh, for liquor. Um, celebrity backed liquor or entertainment uh, backed liquor uh, is well documented to have succeeded, whether it's Clooney and Customigos or Ryan Reynolds and Aviation Gin or pick your favorite example. There's a category that I think we're exploring very seriously to create consumer products. Um, but beauty, cosmetics and fashion, these are all categories where um, entertainment backed or celebrity backed products have done exceedingly well. Um, and the list goes on. I think you'll see uh, some heavy exploration from us in those areas. Um, a second category that we'll make 2.0 announcements before the end of the year is in our legacy content business. Um, obviously with the power of 42 West, we think we could, we have tremendous reach to the streamers and the other buyers of content, as well as um, the ability to hopefully market it very well. So this could be independent film, this could be television, it could be podcasts, it could be documentaries, it could be all forms of, of content and, and we're excited to share some of our opportunities in that field. The third category of 2.0 initiatives that we intend to roll out over the ensuing years would be live events. Um, I made it a point to share the expertise of our marketing agencies in live events, whether it's music with Shorefire, uh, culinary, we're extremely high on uh, with The Door, or even eSports live events with BHI. Uh, those are those are just in their baby years right now. And, and we think that with our combination of being able to bring content to the live events, celebrities to the live events, mark, we're used to marketing those on a national basis, not just local. And then finally, with our influencer marketing, to be able to geo-target influencers that will promote the event, uh, we could do exceedingly well with those. The last category of 2.0 uh, opportunities we see for ourselves would be to take equity in other people's companies, especially companies that are doing either consumer products, content, or live events. Um, there are quite a few companies that are looking to uh, go public um, that, uh, for example, that would want a large scale across the entire breadth of pop culture marketing campaign to let the world know of, of their company or their product. And if it's something we think we can market well, um, we may want to take equity in that company um, as, as part of the consideration for our services. So 
that's uh, very briefly an example of uh, or a description of the four categories of 2.0 initiatives uh, we expect to um, launch in the ensuing years and we'll have two announcements in each of the categories this year of consumer products content and equity i think to briefly touch on it too um, on some of the financials it's also a pivotal year for us because um, we're going to have great top line growth and hit a milestone most micro caps traditionally struggle to hit which i'll i'll mention on the next slide uh, we do expect um, to cross 30 million in revenue this year, up from 24 last year. Um, we think we're in a very attractive, um, at a very attractive price at the moment based on that revenue. Um, and our balance sheet, this, this goes back to the milestone that we're very excited to achieve this year. You know, we were an acquisition strategy for three years. Uh, we incurred debt uh, to buy those companies and our peak uh, December 31st, 2019, I believe, we had a working capital deficit of a little over 15 and a half million. That's been reduced to 4 million as of March 31st. And we believe and we're on track to have a working capital surplus this calendar year. Um, so we will be that rare micro cap company with a working capital surplus. We already have more cash on our books, um, almost triple what we had um, a year and a half ago and our debt's been reduced by 25%. We expect to have more cash on the books than debt when we uh, next report. Um, and uh, the debt's a little misleading since it includes 3 million of PPP loans that we expect to be forgiven. So we're quite excited for those metrics. And in conclusion, um, we think of ourselves as a profitable um, working capital surplus microcap company that's growing with our 1.0 companies cross-selling their services um, and uh, with the optionality and the upside of six to eight catalysts a year in Dolphin 2.0. So there's the overview and I hope I hit it exactly on the 15 minute mark. Hey, I think that I think you were about there and that's great. We would forgive you if you went a little over anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Um, Probably the biggest question that has come up since um, we introduced Dolphin to the community is why would an event owner give up ownership to Dolphin as opposed to just paying you to do like they're doing now, just paying you to uh, market and promote the event? Sure. Um, they. Uh, are not, uh, uh, they are, I should say, mutually exclusive. We, we are seeking to start events in markets where we don't currently have a client with an event. Um, so uh, there are probably 70 or more demographic areas in the United States, for example, large enough to support a food event that could draw two to three, four million of revenue over a four day weekend. And we currently promote in less than half a dozen. Um, so we tend to do the leading large scale events in the country. Uh, we could create a number of sticking to food events for a second. Uh, and there's no shortage of markets where we could take it to. So we won't compete with our, our uh, um, current clients. We'll expand the offerings by starting our own events. 
Okay. And so when you start your own events, would you own the events outright uh, likely or would, in other words, creating something brand new that doesn't exist yourself or, or would this be something that you, you do a joint venture with someone else or perhaps take some ownership in something somebody already has? Yeah. You know, it, 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 our initial thoughts are to uh, start something ourselves um, uh, bring in uh, the the last company we have not yet purchased is a live event production company somebody with the uh, the experience to put on a South Beach food and wine or New York food and wine you know everything from the locations you know securing the location to the permitting I'm talking the actual physical production of it uh, much like we have that experience on the film and television side um, we could either buy a company for that or, or in today's market, as you might expect, there's a lot of great talent out there that are uh, currently unemployed uh, in the live event space. So um, uh, we could build it as well. Um, and in this area, we could see ourselves launching um, uh, with our market testing, let's say a, a food event in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, that doesn't currently exist in the market, um, bring some of our celebrity chefs to it, uh, give it some national recognition as well as local, and then upon success, roll it out across the South the following year to 10 different cities. That's the type of thing that I think we can, we can own and would do very well with that type of structure. That's not to say, though, and it's a great point you're making, Brad, we couldn't take an event that's currently only in Brooklyn, let's just say, um, and doing well, but the owners have no interest to expand. They don't want to um, do that. And, and may, maybe they're even looking to exit. And maybe we purchase the event because we know we could take it to the other markets. So it really opens up both avenues for us. Um, and uh, it really comes down to our market knowledge, knowing which events would be um, that other markets would be receptive to and that we can market to. So, Bill, um, <clears throat> one of the questions that I had, I think it's, you know, in the same strain of thought, is that your core competency up to this point um, has has been the promotion of events, but not necessarily having to evaluate, you know, the economics of these events or of different products and having an equity stake. So could you explain a little bit, you know, why you think you guys can transition into that so well? Sure. Early in my career, I'm, I'm 52. So I remember uh, when I started Dolphin in 96 as a young producer um, and finance partner for some of the networks and studios, when the studios, and this will seem hard to believe, when they invited their CMO to the Greenlight Committee for the first time. Now, we take it today that you would have your marketing specialists at the table before you decide whether you're going to invest in a a large-scale movie or an event of any type. Um, uh, and quite frankly, oftentimes marketing can drive those decisions. I think one of the most appealing facts of Dolphin to the CEOs and the, and the senior management teams of each of our uh, publicity and marketing firms is the fact that they, in their mind, get to decide what to launch and how to launch it um, uh, because they often see 
opportunities that for whatever reason in other environments aren't taken advantage of or their opinions are overlooked in a fit of enthusiasm um, like something this won't work we're going to struggle we're going to get a lot of blowback um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and i think and when it comes to the types of products we're looking to own marketing uh, may oftentimes be the single biggest factor um, I think putting the program together, knowing how to market it, and by program, I mean the content of a live event, to me is paramount. And then you you go hire people that can run the event well. But um, that's our view. And, and having been on the other side for my first 20 years in business where I produced the content, I can tell you that I went and brought in all these marketing experts because in today's world, I don't think there's any success without the ability to um, successfully market to the consumer directly. And uh, I appreciate that. Um, what are, what do you see as some of the risks uh, for you guys in this area? Well, I guess each section of our evolution comes with people um, raising what's the high level concern, right? And when I was on the road three and a half years ago before we uplisted, I was asked repeatedly prior to the uplisting and then all of 2018, what makes you think that these private companies will join? <laughs> and the biggest concern then was, well, can you even build a supergroup? is what I'm trying to say. Um, the knowledge there was that these private companies absolutely would want to join because having been a private business owner myself, the, you can grow your company faster if you're within a collaborative environment of, of equals. Um, and, and that's proven true. The second concern was, well, you, you took debt. Will you be able to pay it down quickly? Um, we're, that's why this year is such an exciting year for us. And we're really pointing to our financials in three weeks and then again in the third quarter. I think today at a high level, we, we knew we would, in other words, the at a high level, you know, content or live event ownership is a risk reward balance. Um, you don't know that the event will work. Um, that is true. You don't know if any one piece of content will work. If you did, you'd play the stock market, right? Uh, joking with this crowd. Um, uh, but uh, that's where, on balance, you know, a track record and, and experience, I think, matters. You know, Dolphin was a successful private company at producing content. We did it successfully, and it gave us the capital to do this venture and take it public. Um, I think if I were to bet, you know, bet the jockey, and I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about the senior management teams at each of the PR firms. If I'm gonna launch a music live event and the senior management team at Shorefire are behind it, then I'm pretty excited for it. And the same with food and, and esports, et cetera. Um, same with content, same with consumer products. If, if we're gonna put a new liquor in the market, um, you know, I want the senior management team at the door, not just excited to do it, but guiding it. Um, Let's let's hear what their best idea is, and I think that's that's the premise of Dolphin that we're we're going to do we're going to take calculated um, and make calculated investments based on you know very very educated guesses. Yeah, and I like that you know you pointed out this was uh, important for me when I first started learning about like this isn't something you guys an idea you just came up with you know the last year or two it's it's a vision that you had you know, going into this uh, to get to this point. So I appreciate that. 
that part of the story as well. I think that was important background for me. Uh, yeah, Brad, I could jump on that one second, just maybe give yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. The, you know, when it comes to 2.0 and, and the different categories of, you know, what do live events, content, or consumer products have in common, then I'll try and simplify something, but it, it, it gives a, it gives a flavor. Um, I think if you are going to launch a consumer product to market, whatever it is, you have three core functions you need to be able to do. You have to be able to produce the product. You have to be able to distribute the product, get it to the consumer, whether retail or whatnot, right? And you have to be able to market the product. And in our motion picture or television world that I come from, if, if one company does all three, they're called a studio. If they don't, then they're called whatever function that is, a production company, a distribution company, or a marketing company, right? We're not seeking to be a studio of other consumer products. We're a marketing company, and with certain products, we can produce the product also, like an NFT or like a, a film or television show. We'll always partner. But what I think with distribution or potentially production, et cetera, but let's take liquor, for example. I mean, in this case, look at the strategic advantages, or I guess what I'm trying to say is how educated the information is that we can access as a leading liquor PR firm. And as just an, an example of any of these categories that we're talking about across any of our companies. You know, the door is extremely well known in that industry. It's, it is the leading PR marketing firm. And so the relationships run deep both with the different producers in that industry called distilleries and also with the various distributors. Um, the largest liquor distributor in the country is Southern Glazer. They are the sponsor of South Beach Food and Wine and New York Food and Wine. Who promotes those? The door. Daily, weekly calls between those two companies. You have a lot more than just marketing experience. You're sharing future market insights. Um, which flavored whiskey is going to be pushed hard in summer of 2022? Uh, where is the next gin uh, flavor going to come from? Uh, which regions of the country are adapting ready-to-drink beverages before other regions of the country? Which distributors in the Northeast are outperforming their peers? Which distilleries are having cash issues, which ones um, have over-delivered in the market. This isn't just, oh, let's make a gin and slap a celebrity on it. <laughs> this is coming with a lot of very high-level premium partnership type collaborations, and you come in with so many advantages uh, when you have those relationships. And uh, the closest I could equate it to is, you know, making a movie off well-known IP in my world. Um, it's no guarantee of success when you adapt a movie from a, from a book that's been a mega seller, but it gives you a heck of a lot better chance. I would argue that when you, when you have, if, if you're the, at the very best in the business at any of those three functions, production, distribution, or marketing, you give yourselves a much better chance of success and there are certain product categories where that marketing is more important or certainly equally important than either of the other two. 
just like there are certain product categories where the actual production of the product is most important. Um, we're looking for opportunities, and, and there are many, in categories where the marketing is the most important, and specifically that our companies are very good at marketing those products. And, and I think just kind of sharing those insights uh, gives you an example of what we're talking about and, and the types of partners we'd go to market with. We wouldn't just, you know, partner with a distillery and make a couple of cases of gin and hope for the best. <laughs> we would we would be going to market with national distributors with a national marketing campaign. And, and then you can see where the door on its own uh, will be a driver of that particular type of consumer product, since I use that as my example. But look at how beneficial it is that they're within the super group. If you want to launch a gin, do you think think it might be worth a conversation with 42S to do it with the PR firm that represents James Bond. That would be a pretty fun collaboration for a shake and not stirred, right? Or do you want geo-targeted influencer marketing because you're putting the you're putting your product in the northeast first. Well, let's go identify, you know, the top 100 influencers in that space that live within a 30 square mile radius in New York City um, with B Social. Or how about do you want a celebrity fronted liquor? Is that music with Shorefire? Is it film and TV with 42S? Do you see where I'm going? And now I think that's where also, yes, the inside knowledge of whichever marketing firm is driving a particular type of product, content, or event is critical. But the fact that they're within this group gives them a unique advantage against even their one or two other competitors. That's our thesis. Yeah, sounds exciting. So, so overall, let's say you uh, let's say you pick a bad event or you create an event that just doesn't go well for some reason. What are the risks to you? It sounds like you're going to fund that primarily with sponsorships. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, yeah. We um, we are only taking calculated bets. We're not. Let's bet the company on a single uh, uh, event or product. Uh, most all of these 2.0 initiatives are anywhere from half a million to I'd say high end million and a half, $2 million at most cash bets. Um, and, and in some cases it's a $0 cash bet. You know, we can take equity in other people's companies uh, for providing services or, or for expansion of our services. There are, and we'll have the opportunity in any of the categories to lay off our, our bet um, project finance in, in, Entertainment has taught me that for 25 years. There are many products where we didn't put up a penny and, and we 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 took 50% instead of 100%. So we'll make we'll make educated decisions based on um, early market data of do we want to how much of any one product or co piece of content do we want to own um, in relation to that type of that type of knowledge. Um, so this is this is this type i equate the 2.0 initiatives very much to the project finance that i i did with dolphin for from 1996 forward where you you put a business plan together for any initiative you see the equity needed to get it off the ground again half a million a million whatever it may be and then you decide do you put up all the money yourself do you put go 50 50 with a partner um or do you lay it off and and take less of an ownership stake in it um, those are the types of evaluations we'll be doing on an individual basis. Something like NFTs, those are very, very inexpensive to produce. 
And what's beautiful about any type of digital product, for example, is you make the NFT once and then you can replicate it. Um, and so that's that's obviously something we don't need a financial partner for. Um, and we would look to, we now we'll have intellectual property partners, uh, um, you know, people that we, we take uh, or develop NFTs for, but um, we don't need a financial partner. Could you maybe talk a little bit, Bill, about how Dolphin 2.0 uh, and those initiatives will work with like Dolphin 1.0 with what, what you've been doing historically. Is it does it cut in to any of the things that you're doing there or is it sort of just neutral or is it, you know, does it actually create uh, benefits to your underlying business uh, sure. as well for the, from the past? We see it as very additive. Um, let me go back Be- because 2.0 initiatives by nature often will touch literally every company in the supergroup or the majority of them. So I can give an example. Um, let me go back to live event, although it applies to content and, and uh, consumer products as well. Um, let's say we were to do that food festival in Memphis. I don't know why I keep picking Memphis, but hopefully they want a food festival. Um, and, um, and and let's say that's an event that has a half a million dollar uh, budget to to roll out um, to, to start, and then it'll expand up as you sell tickets and you buy more food, et cetera. So maybe at, at full at full cost, it's a million five. Of course, you know you've got sales against it to go there. But let's say and you're and you're looking to run an event like that hypothetically at a twenty to twenty five percent margin. So let's just use easy math. Let's say then we do two million of revenue, a million and a half of costs. Now, half a million, hopefully that's relatively exciting for a single event, but it's exciting to us because it's scalable. You can go to 10 cities the next summer. Now you're starting to get a little interesting again for a company our size. You know, that's pretty neat, but it would be misleading to say that all we're doing is making half a million in success. Why? Because that event needs a PR firm. So inside the budget, we give ourselves a third party PR rate, right? We're the owner. So it's, it's how it, you know, so the door is, is getting a PR fee. That event will need somebody to produce it. That would be our live event production company that we either build or buy. That event will need influencer marketing and we would pay be social. And that event would need viewpoint uh, to create branding and, and, and uh, a creative agency. So you can either look at it like we're, we're operating it as a standalone budget for our own you know, best practices and, and, and see how we would want to best spend the million five. But within that million five, we're also creating a client for four of our six agencies. So you could also instead say, well, instead of operating at a 25% margin, maybe we're operating at closer to a 50% margin. And that's exciting for us. And, and uh, um, they're, they're, that's a good example, I think, of synergies and how they help the 1.0 business. Because, you know, I would say that the 500,000 represents the profit under 2.0. And I would say that that event's creating clients under 1.0 for our, our agencies. The other thing that we haven't socialized, but if we wanted to kind of predict in the future, if in 2017 and 2018, I spent a lot of time answering why I thought companies would want to join. And in 2019, I was answering questions of how fast we were going to pay down the debt. And here we are effectively out of it, uh, certainly this year, I mean. Um, and, and really being able to focus on 2.0. I think, um, and, and Aaron and Brad, you had said something earlier that really 
you've picked up on it faster than others in the market, but it's definitely true. 2.0 has cross-selling too. I've never made it a big deal out of that because I'm just trying to explain 2.0 to people. <laughs> but pick any partnership we have at any of our clients. Like, let, let's just say, hypothetically, we started an NFT program with, pick a sports league, right? One that we don't have, right? So it, people are familiar with Dapper Labs and doing NBA top shots, and they've done a great job and have a great product. Let's let's say we were to start an NFT program with one of the sports leagues, hypothetically. Well, of course, it's an NFT program, but with and using a sports league as as a proxy for any intellectual part property partner. But what would stop us from making content? Be it documentaries, be it podcasts, be it whatever around that type of partner. What would stop us from launching other consumer products? What would stop us from doing live events? With that partner so any one 2.0 idea um, can spawn sister 2.0 opportunities and that's that's where you can start really multiplying each relationship so i think that's that probably be more in the focus in 2022 and 2023 as people see the different 2.0 initiatives being announced you know we have five more coming this year and they'll start saying well could you do an nft with this group over here that you're doing content with or could you make some consumer products with this group over here? So I think that's pretty exciting for us too. Sounds like it. So uh, I think I think I heard you reaffirm you were expecting six total new initiatives to be announced in 2021, including the NFT initiative that's already been announced. Is that, did I catch that right? That's right. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a, uh, I know that'll seem like a pretty quick pace. Uh, Although uh, I will say we spent the first six months of this year prepping for those other five. <laughs> so um, uh, it's coming so, out pretty quick. So I wonder if I can put you on the spot. And I understand if you can't answer, but uh, I think you thought you might be maybe able to announce two of those uh, before the August earnings call. Is that something you can still confirm or not? I've been instructed not to. <laughs> I know I can't. I can't okay. comment prior to the earnings call. I will say, um, you know, we we're extremely confident on the uh, five before the end of the year, and you can infer from that that we we believe we know we know what we're intending to do. It's not like we're going to go searching for those partners or whatnot. Sometimes, though, when you have a couple of initiatives, especially on the equity side, that involve partners. Um, you want to be a good partner to them. And sometimes that means doing the timing on their timing. So whether we get, you know, one or two before this earnings call or, or they come very shortly thereafter, it's not always something we, on the timing that we want to be slaves to an earnings call, but we, we are highly confident in the five before the end of the year. Okay. Thank you. Um, NFTs a little bit, just can you explain a little bit how the typical NFT deal will work? And what I mean by that is obviously you've got an artist and I, and I don't know, do you split with the artist? Who else is involved in the, in the economics of it? What's DLPN share? How does, how does DLPN get paid? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And these are early days for NFTs, as you can imagine, right? So we're, we're, but it, it does follow some rules that we have across entertainment and sports uh, developed over the last few decades. Right. Um, it, it partly depends on how many partners there are in a product. So um, without getting into specifics, like let's take our, our NFL Hall of Fame product, you know, we're obviously partners with Hall of Fame, 
village um, for those NFTs. Um, there are individual players involved that would also get a, a piece of the revenue share. So, and, and happily so. Um, and so there's an example of a product that has three, let's call it major partners involved. Um, and without getting into specific revenue shares, you can, you could probably infer from that um, roughly how we're um, looking at that um, relationship. But there are other NFT marketplaces that um, may not have three partners, but only two. We may start an NFT marketplace with just that doesn't have the equip that might be uh, hypothetically if we were to to launch one with a, a film product. It, we might just only have a direct relationship with the studio, for example, or something like that, where you don't, we're not involving players or, or if it was animation, you know, the, the uh, animated characters don't <laughs> get a cut. Um, uh, and then there are certain marketplaces where we ideate the concepts and the culinary NFTs certainly fall within that world. This is, this is an NFT marketplace that Dolphin is in the process of, of uh, developing and will launch to the market as a, as a, uh, under our own consumer branding, I'm not saying it'll be called Dolphin, but, but you know we'll we'll develop a brand for it and and bring it to market. Now we'll partner with individual chefs for individual NFTs, but we would own a much much larger percentage of that marketplace. One could infer the majority or more, or 50% or more of of that of each of those individual sales. So it really depends on each on each um, partnership and. Uh, the value of the underlying intellectual property that that's being brought to us. Okay, interesting. You um, you mentioned earlier about Visa working to settle crypto transactions. Do you have any updates on that? Yeah, um, um, the crypto marketplaces. You know, we we've been waiting as has pretty much the rest of the market to launch large scale um, consumer facing NFT programs for the day when you know you can go to the broadest possible audience, um, meaning can the consumer pay with a credit card? Um, uh, that's now available as of uh, with major platforms. We feel at scale as of last week, uh, we anticipate having um, a partnership with a platform to announce um, uh, very shortly. Uh, you can infer from that, you know, presumably before the or on the earnings call. And um, that platform will be chosen because they can accept credit cards um, as well as potentially uh, fiat currency. So you could pay not just in US dollars, but since NFTs, the, the, to maximize the fullest potential of NFTs and with the types of partners we're attracting to our NFT marketplaces, these are global products. And so you wanna be able to have people pay in whatever the native currency is. And sometimes that might be crypto. But in other cases, it might just be the euro <laughs> or the Canadian dollar or whatever it might be. So to be able to pay with credit cards or fiat currency or crypto is important to us. And we're excited. And, and I think I think now what you're going to see in the market, if I were to predict not just from Dolphin, but from the market as a whole, is you'll start seeing the studios come in, uh, the major music labels come in uh, because NFT programs can be sold to the to their to all of their existing customers now. Great. Well, let's see. I had a couple of financial questions before I before I ask those. Uh, Aaron, did I miss anything we should we should ask no, about? I don't think so. Those are the only other questions I have as well. Okay, a couple of quick quick ones, and uh, and then we'll uh, uh, I think we'll be done. Uh, Bill, um, the earnouts. I've the earn, you have earnouts 
uh, I think with some of your your purchases that you've done or acquisitions, I should say that you've done with the the super groups. Can you talk a little bit about how those work and what impact they may have on financials and for how long? Sure. Well, um, let's see. I, I think of our acquisitions in order. So probably the headline statement uh, we made on our Q1 earnings call, and I'll reiterate Q2, um, is uh, that our uh, the earnout and the cash payments to the to the CEOs of 42S have been completed as of March of this year. That was that was a balance sheet item for four years, and uh, we owed 11 million dollars over those four years, and we paid in full as of March. So there's no continuing obligation there. And, and that that's um, uh, uh, one aspect of our the liabilities on our balance sheet that we've already cleaned up or finished paying, I should say. Um, um, in terms of other earnouts, we have um, uh, the door, um, uh, uh, B Social and BHI all have ongoing earnouts, uh, the doors. Uh, we'll finish at the end of this year and then BHI and, and be social at the end of next year. Um, but uh, with full earnouts being met, I think we have 7.6 million shares outstanding today. Uh, it would take us to less than still, we'd still stay under 8 million shares uh, even with full earnouts being met. So it's not a, um, it's not a very large overhang. And of course, we we want them to hit it. <laughs> Our numbers will oh yeah, yeah. will reflect that, and we're excited for that. Great. So, in your other income section, and I know these these are overlapping uh, discussions here, but what what is you know when I go through gain on uh, when I go through change in fair value of convertible notes, loss on deconsolidation of Max Steel Vi, change in fair value warrants, put rights, and so forth. What is what is remaining in that section that we would see going forward and what's gone? Is that something you have right on the top of your head? Sure. Yeah, this goes this goes back into what we'll make a, continue to make a meal out of on our earnings calls because 2021 was uh, such a, is such a great year for all of that since many of them either expire or have been paid off in full. Um, warrants, we're down to only 20,000 warrants left. Um, in total, uh, obviously that's 20,000 shares um, if exercised. Um, so all the previous warrant overhang is has expired, um, which is great. Uh, the puts I just mentioned have been paid off in full, um, and uh, I believe uh, fair value of any uh, convertible notes. The convertible notes uh, that we had entering uh, the first half of this year. Um, all but one have been uh, converted. Um, so uh, we're really, there's only one note left uh, that is being fair valued. Um, uh, so that's nice. Um, we, we have some notes that uh, are not fair valued. And so that means we can mark them to their actual principal amount. Um, but they're all long-term, which is also great. So that's also helping us with our working capital. Um, and I think those are all the, the variable instruments. Um, yeah, I, yeah I think that's it. Yeah, that'll yeah. make it easier to that'll make it easier to read from now on. So I'm glad about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got that comment too. <laughs> or a few people. Boy, it's much simpler now. I said, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. It's also nice yeah, to have more cash than debt, right? <laughs> Including yeah. term debt. 
But I like the way you, you know, the way you structured things to give everybody skin in the game and motivation to to come together and collab, do what you're doing to succeed. I think that was a very very wise move. So I think it's great. Yeah, all of our all of our CEOs have have uh, equity and and we've uh, we've had on the books now an employee stock option plan that we're excited for this fall um, to incentivize all of our senior leadership and everyone in the company for that matter. Um, so. Um, this, this, this thesis will work when, when, if we collaborate and uh, help each other launch these 2.0 initiatives. All right. Well, thank you. I think that's all we have. Thank you, no, thank you guys. And I, I really appreciate the time to speak to you and your audience. And I know your, your audience knows this, but the amount of time you take to understand our story, I assume is the same amount of time you take to understand the stories of other companies you're interested in and you just do not see this in the marketplace certainly in my four years of, of being a ceo building a micro cap company hopefully into a small cap company pretty soon um and uh um it, it's impressive and i appreciate the effort you make to really understand companies and um uh, i wish we we saw more of it so thank you guys very much yeah oh, thank, thank you. you and we'll be posting it you know later today or soon on YouTube and as a podcast format. So we'll, we'll get it out to more people that, that can't join. We have a lot of people that, uh, you know, that during the workday they can't join. So. Well, and if I could, for anyone that would like to, I mean, we're happy to put anyone on our mailing list, you know, if you want to see our earnings release and hear about the times of our earnings calls, et cetera, I think that'd be great. And it could either be sent to right on our website or to James at Hayden IR. Um, and we'd love to get the word out there. So thank you guys very much for that opportunity. Thank you, Bill. Some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. The views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers, not breakout investors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither breakout investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor. No one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.